Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, February 6th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. Happy Monday to you. I hope your weekend treated you well and that you got a chance to get outside and enjoy the weather that we're lucky enough to have right now. Looking around the U.S., we are truly lucky to be having the sunshine and warmth that we're seeing. So take advantage, especially in a beautiful place like New Mexico. Now, of course, it's also Black History Month, and there are a ton of events planned around the state and in the city of Albuquerque. That includes the Black Business Summit tomorrow and Wednesday at the Albuquerque Convention Center. You can register and learn more at the city's website. And Wednesday this week, Gene Grant will speak with president and founder of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council, Catherine McGill, in a Facebook Live conversation about all our state is offering this month and throughout the year. I've included a link in the description of this episode of the podcast with more of the events happening around Albuquerque. For now, let's get to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. A local nonprofit news organization is suing the governor's office, accusing the administration of withholding emails relating to alcohol policy. According to reporting from the Santa Fe New Mexican, New Mexico In-Depth filed the complaint in court Monday, saying Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham held onto a number of emails they requested. The governor cited executive privilege. This comes after In-Depth wrote a series last year on alcohol abuse and made a case for a stronger state government response to the drinking problem. The lawsuit revolves around two records requests filed by journalist Ted Alcorn, who authored the series. Alcorn filed two records requests in October, seeking documents from staffers in the governor's administration. Lujan Grisham's office responded with 53 emails, but withheld nine, again, citing executive privilege. Alcorn filed another request in December, looking for any additional documents from the governor's office discussing alcohol. Lujan Grisham's office disclosed some emails and other records, but withheld 11 more emails. Judge Matthew Wilson is hearing the case, but no court dates have been set. Actor Alec Baldwin will face his first court hearing later this month as prosecution moves forward in the fatal 2021 Rust shooting. Baldwin's first appearance will take place on Friday, February 24th at 10 a.m. Film armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is also charged with involuntary manslaughter and will follow Baldwin on the same day. According to KRQE, the hearing will not take place in person, meaning that both will appear through an online video link platform. Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed are each charged with one count of involuntary manslaughter. If convicted, they each face a penalty of up to 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine. Coming up in less than 15 minutes here on the podcast, Gene Grant speaks with a film industry insider, Gene Mattis from Variety Magazine, about the case and the criteria that needs to be met to secure a manslaughter conviction. A former governor of a New Mexico Pueblo has been chosen to be the state's next Secretary of Indian Affairs. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham made the announcement Friday that James R. Mountain of Pueblo de San Ildefonso will lead the department, citing his expertise in state and tribal relations. According to the Associated Press, Mountain says it's an honor to take on the post and hopes that he can build strong government relationships that respect the sovereignty of New Mexico's nations, tribes, and pueblos. Mountain oversaw the completion of the Amat Water Settlement, the Pueblo's water rights, and the Indian Land Claim Settlement in 2006. We're entering the third full week of the legislative session in Santa Fe, and voting and elections have become leading issues. There are several bills on the table that would update primary and general election laws. That includes a bill called the Voting Rights Act, which, among other things, would automatically register voters when receiving a driver's license and restore voting rights to felons once they are no longer incarcerated. 
Political correspondent Gwyneth Dolan caught up with two lawmakers and a voting rights advocate inside the Roundhouse last week. You can watch those interviews online right now on the New Mexico and Focus YouTube page. Right now on the podcast, we're going to hear analysis from Gene Grant and our line opinion panelists on the legislation at hand. Our panelists for the week are Dave Mulryan, president of Mulryan Nash Advertising, Merritt Allen of Vox Optima Public Relations, and Catherine McGill, president and founder of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. Here's Gene. Democrats are taking another go at passing a voting rights bill that failed last year in the Roundhouse. Now, if approved, it would create a permanent optional absentee voter list. It would reinstate voting rights for felons immediately upon release from prison and it would make Election Day a state holiday. That's been out there for a while, that idea. Now, with a majority in the House and Senate, will Democrats, David, I'll start with you, be able to get this bill to the governor's desk? It sounds easy. This might be a bit of a push. What's yeah, well, interested mean, in your I'm thoughts on that? I don't know. It's going to be a very tough push, no question. Yeah. Um, if I were the legislature, if the legislature were asking me, I'd go for, like, the big thing, which I think is, you know, making voting a state holiday is a great thing because mm -hmm. it says it gives people one less reason not to go vote. So I would try that. Um, in terms of the felons, you know, New Mexico is actually pretty good. You get to register to vote and vote again after you finish serving your probation. I think the new bill is looking to do it as soon as you come out, even right. if you're still on probation, yeah. you get to register to vote. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things, but the, the, you know, Merritt just said this and I'm stealing it, but you know, I think a lot of this is happening because again, we're gonna, now we're, we've weaponized voting, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, I think one side could be said to have started weaponizing it and calling in, you know, question the integrity of voting while the other side, like these bills in New Mexico was sort of a blue state, we're looking to make sure that we do have access to voting, which, right. you know, I think more voting is better than less voting, that's all. Right. We can say. Merritt, you can't quite call this an omnibus bill, I mean, but it's huge. There's a lot of different ideas here. I'm wondering if, you know, might it be better to consider passing these proposals, smaller individual bills, and try to get to some kind of cohesion at the end of the session? Well, I, I feel like um, this bill is a 186-page solution in search of a problem. Right. Um, right. Our elections, for the most part, work pretty pretty well in New Mexico. Right. And there's a lot of stuff in here that I find uh, problematic. First of all, mm -hmm. I think it could be politically very dangerous uh, uh, for the uh, Democrats because we've already seen in Otero County and Sandoval County, the far right wants to challenge election results. This is a strategy um, the RNC is implementing. Uh, election integrity is going to continue to be big. Um, I've already, I'm already getting emails from the state party uh, pushing against this. Um, I, so I think it's politically imprudent um, of the Secretary of State. Uh, she's going to get a lot more pushback should this pass. Um, I don't think 16-year-olds uh, need to be voting. We need to decide on a majority age period. Is it 18? Right. Is it 21? Right. Now we're throwing 16 to, into the mix. Yep. Um, that's not helpful. And it also, this, this motor voter automatic registration thing, it's actually going to create a lot more DTS voters and it's going to uh, result in uh -huh. voter suppression in the primary because DTS voters cannot vote in the primary right. and you can't tell me that the Sapien Amendment does that. One percent of independents chose to change their election, uh, change their registration and go vote in the primary this right. year. It's not working. It's not a solution. Mm -hmm. So unless they cram open primaries into this bill. It's really a voter suppression bill. That's interesting. I have to talk about that in a, in a little bit. Uh, Kathy, another couple of anecdotes here. The bill also includes specific provisions 
uh, for Native American voters, including mandatory language translation, seems like a good idea during early voting, of course. Use of tribal buildings as mailing addresses for people who don't have traditional mailing addresses, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? There's a lot of little good things in here. Yeah. And I see them working, trying to put it all in one big ball rolling downhill, but uh, I, I ask again, is it might be better to kind of have this discussion parsed out and, and individually for all these ideas? I think it would be a lot of things. I actually disagree that, that this is a, a bill in search of a problem, mm -hmm. um, that there are some things that we need to do to modernize elections, and I don't see a downside to having it be more easy for people to vote. Right. Um, I do think that we need to have integrity and we do still have all of the uh, safeguards in place for us to have election integrity. And I think our elections mm -hmm. are safe and secure. And I also think we need to modernize the elections. So these, mm -hmm. these are some things that other people are doing that I think we should do here. As far as the uh, felons being able to vote, yeah. once they have served their sentence and you, we we said that, that you have done what you're supposed to do, even if you're still on parole, um, you, your citizenship rights should be restored. Right. You know, and that is what it said in the Constitution. It's like, what, it, what are civil rights? They are the right to vote and the right to be free from unjust discrimination. So I think that we should restore the rights of the citizens to vote once they have been released from this prison. This has come up a lot in the African-American community right. for obvious reasons. For we obvious have a lot reasons. of getting out of prison, wanting right. to get back into society. Right. This is a huge discussion in places like Alabama, Georgia, yes. Florida. Right. Could New Mexico have somewhat of a leadership position here if they pass this part of the felon uh, uh, idea? Know, we, we will be, I think, on the right side yeah. of this issue if we decide to do it, but a lot of other states mm -hmm. have done it. Um, actually, maybe not a lot of other states. I know D.C. and mm -hmm. um, I think one of, uh, one other state mm -hmm. um, um, in the District of Columbia have mm -hmm. uh, restored as soon as you are released from prison. Um, I just think that it's, a, it's an important thing for us to do at this time because it does affect people that look like me most often. Right. Just, just a note on that. Mm -hmm. um, in uh, its email, the state party, the state Republican Party is pushing back hard on that, yes. yet are kind of silent on Solomon Pena and you know his second chance. Right. So, I mean, you know, this is how yeah, he's allowed to vote for himself, and, and it's fine. You know, right. it's you know, right? Leadership position within the party, <laughs> able to vote for himself, stand for office. So, right. you know, e either they can vote for and for office or not. And mm -hmm. you know, I. I, I see a big disconnect but there. Can we also just say that, you know, uh, let's look at how many people actually do vote in New right. Mexico. We need right. more people to That's vote. Right. Well, you know, right. we need to make it so that it's accessible and that it's inclusive for voting. Let me ask you, Catherine Gill, on that point, ranked choice voting is under discussion as well statewide. That's interesting. We have experience, of course, in Santa Fe and Las Cruces mm -hmm. with this style of voting. Is what do you think about the public's appetite for this? I think people don't really understand it yeah. as much as they should and, and uh, or could. If we did a better job of education and outreach, I'm always going to be talking about that. Mm -hmm. So we need to do more education about what ranked choice voting is. Mm -hmm. I'm a proponent of it. I think that it would help us get better candidates in Dave, office. Dave, your thoughts on that? I'm well, curious. I mean, there's a couple of things. Let's, let's not yeah. forget all this whole thing with making voting easier, making it harder, was kicked off when the Supreme Court basically gutted the Voting Rights Act. Do you mm -hmm. mean, you know, so there's no question. 
right? But number two, I look at all of these very specific proposals. Mm -hmm. The number one thing to do, we need to do, is we need to get more people registered to vote and get them to vote. You know, I mean, you know, in the end, you can say it. And when you look at what's happened with, like, you know, 2022 was supposed to be the Republicans are going to wipe out, you know, do everything. They won with what four or five votes in the House. The Democrats kept the you know the Democrats kept the Senate. When you look at the people who got out and voted, it was young people. You know, mm -hmm. so I mean we're spending all of this time kind of like tweaking things. When if I were in charge of the Democratic or the Republican Party, I'd be like, okay, here's another hundred million dollars. We've got all these people registered <laughs> to vote. Get them registered to vote and make mm -hmm. sure they turn out. You mm -hmm. know. That's Frank, good. Frank Go choice. What do you think? Uh, based on what we did in Santa Fe, nothing I, blew I, up. Um, <laughs> it took convincing for me. It really okay. did take convincing. Mm -hmm. It took a couple of detailed presentations, the education outreach that Catherine's talking about yeah. for me. Um, but I like it. They've just gone through it and implemented it in Alaska. And what it does is it eliminates the partisan primary. Nice. All the candidates go into one primary wow. and the top five vote getters all go to the general election. And then um, you decide, okay, I like this person the best. Um, I like this person the next best. And, you know, if you have two candidates, say in the primary, that sure. you can't decide between and they both make it to the general, you get to vote for both of them. And then you're like, this person's okay. I can't stand this person. Um, our voting machines are already set up to handle it, so it will not cost more money. Uh, also, um, it you know gives you more choice and it gives you more options, and you don't have to rank. You can just vote for one. You can just say, "I only right. want this person." Right. Your ballot's still valid. You don't have to rank all five. You can only rank you can only rank two. Your ballot's still valid. Um, so it gives voters a lot more choice, a lot more options, and it gives more candidates access, right. which is also important, I think, is I candidate access. That That's yes. interesting. Uh, not to make you spokesperson for the GOP as you're sitting here, but right choice voting in the party, it, I've not heard chatter against it necessarily loud. Are folks just sort of waiting and watching or? Um, neither party is, yeah. uh, Democrat, Democrats are more open to it than Republicans in general, but neither party is terribly excited about it because yeah. it does change the primary system, which is, you know, the really the big partisan effort. Right. Um, it, it, it makes elections more nonpartisan. It changes mm -hmm. party uh, structure. Right. Uh, not structure, but tradition. Sure. And so change is not always popular. Right. So no I mean, how righteous it looks. Just right. right, exactly. It's necessary, though. <laughs> right. Because right. we're right. voting for people and not parties, and, exactly. and young people are really not um, invested in this binary system, we got to do something exactly. different. Right. But, but you know, just a very quick observation. This is my editorial. Love it. If you look at the politicians in general, from a state legislator to a city council to a congressman, they seem sort of afraid of voting. You know, like I mean, they just like voting to them is both how they get elected and could be their downfall. So right. I guess you have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with it. But to me, more voting. You know, we still have a terrible turnout for terrible. voting. You know, it's awful for this country in general. Across the board, 52%. That's terrible, and we haven't really improved it. You know, we just, we have to continue, get people registered, get them yeah. to vote. Yeah. The parties need to push out their voters, you know. We, we, and to a reason, you know, to give people a, a reason to vote. Right. So the people that I talked to, it's like, Kathy, uh, why should I vote for either one of these people? Right. And I have nothing interested. And no. if politicians don't have to fight 
to the far extremes of either party in a partisan primary, if that's eliminated, they right. may vote that's more right. freely right. to really represent their voters. Right. Mm -hmm. that's a well, I mean, I think that's a good way to sum it up. We need yeah. more. We need more easier access to voting. But we also need a better reason to vote, which is better politicians and politicians that can <laughs> communicate well, and that can tell people, "Vote for me because I could do this for you." That's right. Instead of just being a politician, exactly right. right. Thanks to our line panelists for that conversation. Thank you to our line opinion panelists. Online right now, you can watch two other conversations between Gene and the panel. The first on recent complaints from the Bernalillo County Sheriff about the department's body camera technology. And the second on a bill that would allow local governments to control their own community's electrical needs. Those conversations are both on the New Mexico in Focus YouTube page right now. Now, shifting our attention here on the podcast, we know Alec Baldwin will appear in court later this month on charges of involuntary manslaughter in the death of Rust cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Last week, as a part of our Facebook Live conversation series, Gene Grant spoke with Gene Mattis, a senior reporter at Variety who's been on top of this case since it broke. He shares some interesting insight, including the legal criteria that needs to be met for a manslaughter conviction. We're joined by Gene Mattis. He is a reporter for Variety Magazine, the industry bible, I like to think, out in Los Angeles. Um, Gene, you were with us before regarding the Rust situation with Mr. Baldwin and the Armorer and others, but now we're down to charges being filed against two people, and I'm curious from where you sit out in LA, how did you, what was your first reaction when you heard uh, the charges coming down for Mr. Baldwin and Ms. Gutierrez at the armor on set of Rust as well? I mean, we definitely expected something to be filed, um, but I think it was still a surprise that Baldwin was charged with involuntary manslaughter. Um, you know, I think that was sort of the maximum you could imagine him being charged with. And there's an enhancement on it that actually makes it quite serious in terms of prison time. So it's certainly more aggressive than I think a lot of people were expecting. Certainly the armorer, I think people sort of have focused a lot on her and thought that she probably would be charged, but to add Baldwin and to give him a felony that carries like a five to six year sentence is, is definitely swinging for the fences. Yeah. Uh, please explain that add-on charge as well. Um, that interesting point you just made there, actually. Yeah. So uh, he's charged with involuntary manslaughter, which uh, in New Mexico, it's a felony, It's a but it's a fourth degree felony. So it's not the highest level. It's the lowest level felony you can, you can charge. But because there was a gun used uh, in the course of that felony, they've added on this weapons enhancement that um, carries a five-year minimum sentence. So it, it, it's not at the discretion of the judge. If you're convicted of this and uh, you get a five-year minimum sentence mandatory, mm -hmm. and then you could get another 18 months on top of that. So it could be as much as six and a half years. That's incredible when you think about it. And it, it comes down to an obvious question I got to ask you next. We've got SAG-AFTRA uh, releasing a statement in defense of Mr. Baldwin that basically says this, he's an actor. And we have yeah. we have systems in place in our movie sets that have been in place for a long time about how weapons get handled. And it is not, in fact, the actor's job to check over everybody else's work. First, were you surprised that SAG came out so early and so forcefully? And has there been any pushback that you've uh, gleaned out in LA from to SAG for taking such a, a strong stand for Mr. Baldwin? I, again, I honestly was a little surprised by that because certainly the the narrative around this shooting has been very focused on 
you know, low budget films and the risks of hiring unqualified people. And certainly if the below the line unions, they sort of felt like, you know, this is what producers are doing. They're, they're cutting corners all over the place. And this is what happens when we're mistreated like this. And I think there was a, a real sense of solidarity across all the unions with that. But then when you charge an actor, I think the actors did feel like they had to stand up and say, wait a minute, you know, this is not what we're hired to do. We're not hired, like that's what the armorer is hired to do is to make sure that we're safe on set. And like, we can't be responsible for, for the armorer's job. And, you know, it gets into this interesting thing of, you know, the world of reality and then the world of movies, right? Like in the world of reality, you never point a gun at somebody unless you're going to shoot them. In the world of movies, you might, you know, like um, it's a different set of expectations. And so for the, the SAG folks, they're basically saying, look, you don't understand our job. You don't understand what we do. We are putty in the hands of the director and we are not there to tell people what to do or to second guess the armor whose job it is to make sure that everybody's safe. Mm -hmm. Gene, one of the points of uh, confusion, I guess that's probably the best way to put it, is the role of the first AD who has pled out of the situation. And uh, I've read a couple of different confessions. I, uh, confessions, I'm not sure if this is the right word, but the reporting runs two ways. One is that he never did pick up that, you know, pistol outside, then bring it into that small little church and yell cold gun. And then others are reporting that he in fact did do that. We'll find out on, on when we get to trial, certainly. But I'm interested in your opinion on on how the DA let the first AD plead out here, who basically confessed to not checking the gun when he handed it to Mr. Baldwin appropriately. I mean, I'm curious your, your thoughts on that. Well, it is interesting. You know, David Halls, the, assist, the first assistant director, um, has not been out in public, has not done any interviews and did not. You know, he sort of resisted the uh, OSHA investigators for a little while, didn't want to talk to them. But then apparently he did, his lawyer, you know, kept him quiet and then sort of went to them and said, look, we'll cooperate. What kind of deal can we get? And they responded favorably to that cooperation. Now compare that to Alec Baldwin, who's given interviews all over the place, George Stephanopoulos, CNN, you know, spoken many, many times to the sheriff's department and just, you know, said all kinds of things, some of them contradictory, and now has sort of, in some ways, not helped himself by doing that and is now facing an involuntary manslaughter charge. Like, it's a very different approach that he took compared to what Halls did. That's a good point there you just made as well, because I remember being a little confused that the argument came down to whether he pulled the trigger or cocked the hammer. And if it's going to come down to something like that, I, I just, I don't know, juries are, are, are tricky that way. I mean, a Colt 45 long gun, or not long gun, that's a rifle, but you know what I mean, one of those longer Colt yeah. 45s. They're not easy to handle. You talk to anybody who's familiar with firearms, I just, I don't know, that seems like an awfully odd way to kind of plant your flag. But you make a good point that Mr. Baldwin kind of set himself up with that by, you know, standing on this trigger thing or not. How do you think that's going to hold up, this whole idea of the trigger or not? Whether I mean, if, if the jury's focused on that, it's not good for Alec Baldwin because it right. suggests that he knows that he did something wrong and mm -hmm. he feels compelled to... To, to maybe to lie about it, maybe to say something that just a lot of people find hard to believe, who knows? Mm -hmm. But if you're his lawyer, you don't want people focused on, did he pull the trigger or not? You want to focus on, was it his job to make sure there weren't any live rounds in the in the, in the the chamber? Right. And I mean, most people would say it wasn't, but um, 
you know, if you can get the jury to focus on that and not focus on, well, did he pull the trigger? Did he not pull the trigger? Then, then that's the job to do. Mm -hmm. There were complaints, as you know, and as you reported when you were with us at New Mexico PBS last time uh, when the story broke, um, there were two discharges on yep. that set earlier that week of firearms. There was a walkout of the camera crew who really was not happy with the we, the culture on the set was going on there. So I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards where the DA is coming from here. Clearly something was not right on that set. And what I'm leading up to is, does this all fall on Mr. Baldwin? This is the big argument here locally. As a producer, quote unquote, and what his job actually was to oversee all of this, your sense of how that would come down, trying to make Mr. Baldwin the overseer of all actions on a film set. I mean, he's called himself a creative producer, meaning he would give input on the character or the story or the plot, but it's not his job to hire the crew, you know, right. like that's not what he's there to do. And I don't think they have evidence that it is his job to hire the crew or that he had any role in hiring this armor or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But you do see in the uh, probable cause affidavit that the prosecutor filed yesterday, you know, Alec Baldwin failed to properly supervise, failed to make sure that there were safety meetings, failed to make sure that the armorer was well qualified. All of these supposed duties that he has as a producer or, you know, lead actor in the film well, are those his duties? Like, I guess, well, that'll be an issue, but like, they're not saying, and he, you know, it was his job to make sure that, you know, safety bulletin number one was adhered to because of X, Y, and Z in his contract. Like, they're going to have to spell out at some point what he was actually required to do mm -hmm. because his lawyer is going to come in and say he was an actor. He, show, he didn't even show up for the first week. He was there the second week, you know, doing his job, and his job wasn't to hire the armorer or to make sure that she was qualified. Mm -hmm. Do we do we know how many producers are listed it on, on credits for Rust? Kind of an odd question, but I, I think I, it was a bunch. depending on how you count, it could have been a half a dozen or more. So, right. you know, some of those folks like, you know, Baldwin's agent was on there. So, like, I don't think he's signing checks either, you know, right. but there are a couple, maybe a couple or three who are like really in charge of the money and making sure that, you know, the production went forward. Um, but, you know, people get producer credits for all kinds of random. You can get a producer credit for making an introduction. That's right. You get a producer credit because you made the original version of a movie 40 years ago and you have nothing to do with this one, but they're in your contract, you get a producer credit. You know, it's, it's not a, a title with a specified set of responsibilities. That's the same from every project, you know? Yeah. But the public perception and even here locally is that the producer is the overseer of all. Somehow this meme is sort of you know, gotten out there against Mr. Baldwin. It's very interesting. And you mentioned the probable cause statement yesterday. Let me read you a bit of it. Um, lists him both, just to reiterate, it lists him as both an actor and a producer on Rust. It alleges in part, quote, on the day of the shooting alone, evidence shows that no less than a dozen acts or omissions of recklessness occurred in the short time period prior to lunch in the time of the shooting. And this does not include the reckless handling of the firearm by Mr. Baldwin. I, the reason I read that out loud, there's a starting to be a feeling out here locally that our DA might be reaching a little bit here. And, and, and same with her investigative team, that this is really about Mr. Baldwin, a political play, so to speak. I'm not asking you to comment on that. You're you're out there. You're not here. But I'm curious how this does look from a distance. What, you know, the files charged uh, by the district attorney out here, does it feel political to LA people at all? Or, or is this really very straight ahead? 
I think LA people, you know, certainly Alec Baldwin is um, very famous for having political opinions. He played mm -hmm. Donald Trump for years on Saturday Night Live. He's obviously a very polarizing person in the national political landscape. LA people are definitely on one side of that political dialogue. And so they're inclined to be suspect of, you know, anybody in, in their tribe sort of being targeted. I don't know that there's any actual like evidence of that, but um, it's certainly a thought that people have. Um, but just in terms of, you know, whether it's a, it's a reach or not, you know, I've been talking to defense lawyers in New Mexico who are sort of spelling out for me, like, here's what you have to prove to prove involuntary manslaughter. And it's not just, you know, I, I didn't check the gun. It's not just I forgot to do something or this. It's a willful disregard for someone else's life and safety. And you have to know that there's a danger and you have to ignore it. Mm -hmm. And so it could come down to things like a fight where you punch somebody and they, you know, mean to kill them, but they die, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But you knew that it was a dangerous act. So did Alec Baldwin know that pulling the trigger here was a dangerous act? Like, I think that's what it's going to come down to is like, was he aware of this risk? And he's going to say, nobody had any idea. It's never happened in a million years that there have been live rounds mixed in with dummy rounds. None, no, the armor didn't know that. Nobody even had the first inkling of that. And so to say that he was aware of the risk and recklessly ignored it, you're going to have to show that, you know, he should have known or did know, in fact, that, you know, pulling that trigger was going to have that result. And that is that is a that is a tough hill to climb. It sounds like it, but the DA is going to try to make it. That's for sure. I, you know, I'm, I'm, what's your sense of how this trial will go down? Meaning uh, there's some chatter around here, the possibility it might move. It's so high profile here in New Mexico. You might have to have it somewhere else. Any sense of that? I mean, I, I haven't heard that one. Um, I, I don't know if I would feel like it would have to stay within New Mexico. Right. Just to, because New Mexico law applies. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you could move it to Albuquerque, maybe. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it, it's probably the same media market, right? New Mexico and, and Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You'd Fox. have to go way down south uh, to Las Cruces, <laughs> the furthest south city that has um, shares more with El Paso. The you don't want to do that. Right, <laughs> exactly. And again, who does that serve? Does that serve the DA? Does it serve Mr. Baldwin? You know what I mean? There's tricky parts for both. So <laughs> I know in uh, the Harvey Weinstein trial, there was a motion to get it out to Long Island or up to Albany or something like that because they said that New York was too you know, the New York jury pool was tainted by too much information about this. And it's like, well, they know the same stuff in Albany. They know the same stuff in Long Island. You know, it's a national media market. It's a famous thing. Like, I don't think you're going to go to Las Cruces and find people who haven't heard about this. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, well, last question for you, Gene. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, I can know you're super busy. Um, the sense of the acting community in Los Angeles, people have got to be watching this close, but at the same time, if this does not work out well for Mr. Baldwin, that would, I have to imagine that would have a tremendous ripple effect in the entirety of the acting community and perhaps even be a driver for a lot more change on set when it comes to handling firearms and, and the such. Again, I think kind of think of worst case here, if Mr. Baldwin gets dinged a little bit here, how does that impact the, the greater uh, SAG community in, in Los Angeles and around the country, I should I should add. I definitely think, I mean, who knows what will happen in the future, but I think it's already had an impact in terms of the willingness of productions to use live, you know, to, to use blank uh, rounds. Right. And blank rounds are 
you know, to be clear, they're, you know, a, a real gun that can fire a blank round. It's just, it makes a pop, but it, no projectile comes out, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of folks are switching over to these airsoft guns that look like a real gun, but it's just a plastic thing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't fire, it can't fire anything. And then you make the pop or you make the bang in, in post and you do a, a CGI flash or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's way more expensive than using blanks. But I think people are sort of sizing up the, you know, actors don't feel comfortable. Productions might not feel comfortable. Like why risk it? Let's just pay the money for the, the right. CGI. So that's, I think a lot of that has already started to happen. And the armorer community, the people who, who sort of do the blank uh, work, Mm -hmm. um you know this is their livelihood right like they've developed this skill over many decades and and the industry has developed a skill over 100 years of how, here's how we do this safely and so their feeling is like we're being unfairly you know blamed for this situation and if people would you know see that we're actually doing this quite safely then then you know but i think people are already you know moving towards cgi much more than they were before I can imagine you're right. By the way, uh, I did say last question, but you just prompted the thought here. Have we heard from the Armorers Union uh, on this? There's situation? no union. I mean, there is like sort of an informal group. Okay. I mean, um, it's such a small community. There's probably like, you know, a couple dozen at most that, you know, are really working at this like full time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so there, there are sort of groups that advocate for, you know, their interests, but I don't think it's like a formal union or anything but there i think the people i've talked to in that community are generally like look you know we, we know what we're doing because we've you know done this for a long time right um and this person was unqualified to do this and you just need to hire qualified people and you won't have this problem her she's the daughter of someone who has been in this for years i, I mean I, that's I interesting think, too like yeah you know there's no there's no certification requirement. There's no like training right. course that you can go to really. Yep. Um, I mean, there's a little bit of a firearms course here in Los Angeles for the, the prop union, but it's not like a, here's how to be like, if you come out of that, you'll know how to be an armorer. It's really an apprenticeship based system. And it's really informal because it's such a, like so many of these Hollywood jobs are such a small niche. Yes. You know, it's like, how do you make a phaser? Well, there's only going to be like six people who know how to do that you know and the same with armors like there's not that many people that know how to do it and so it's really based on connections and apprenticeship and just working alongside somebody and that's what happened you know this uh, young woman was the daughter of a very respected veteran armorer and came up in the way that people do a lot of people in hollywood do their dad's job you know right. like they Right. They get the job that their dad did and it passes from father to son or father to daughter or whatever. Um, and she obviously, this was just her second movie. So she was still pretty new at it. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's come in for a lot of criticism for how, how she handled it. Have we determined who actually hired her, the UPM or anybody else? Anybody, any thread there? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the production hired her, um, but which person individually, it might've been, I don't want to say a name, but sure. uh, it, it's, she was certainly recommended by somebody else who had worked with her before. Mm -hmm. Again, this will all come out at trial. You know, all we can do at this point yeah. is muse uh, beforehand. Gene Mattis, thank you very much for Variety Magazine. We really appreciate your time once again, and hopefully we can tap on you uh, when the trial does start and as things are kind of moving along here, because as you mentioned, the ramifications for the acting community are large here. And I'm not just saying uh, out in Los Angeles, but here in New Mexico, 
people, actors are watching this very carefully. As you, as you might imagine, a lot of chatter on Facebook, a lot of chatter all over the place. It's a big deal out here. So we'll see how this all plays out. Gene right. Mattis, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time once again. Thank you to Gene Grant, Gene Mattis, our line opinion panelists, and a special shout out to one of our interns, Junko Featherstone, who's been helping out writing some of those news briefs that you hear at the beginning of the podcast each week. She's been a big help and it's been great working with her. Stay with New Mexico and Focus during the week on our social media pages. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, don't miss New Mexico and Focus this Friday night at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, February 6th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.